Guys, welcome back to Talking with TK. I'm your host, Tristan Cannell, episode 78. And our special guest today is Adrian Skeggs. Moose, as he's affectionately known, is an absolute sensational bloke. He played in the 80s and 90s rugby union, and he played for Queensland, New South Wales, Natal, and also went on a tour with the Wallabies. So quite the accomplished player. He's actually the only Wallaby to ever come from Lord Howe Island. So he's got an incredible story. The fact of the matter is he didn't even have parents from the age of around 14. So he literally raised himself with his siblings. And he's just got an amazing story. He was originally a teacher, but today he's just one of the great connectors, not only in sport, but in business. I'm really grateful for the opportunity to meet Moose because, yeah, he's just someone that's already taught me so much about communication and about creating networks. So I'm really appreciative that he's come on the show to share his story today. Before we get Moose on the show, just a big shout out to everyone tuning in today. Really appreciate you stopping by. If it's your first time here, please subscribe for free. You can do that all online at www.talkingwithtk.com or you'll find it all on iTunes. And if you've got an opportunity, please leave me a review or you'll also find it on other platforms such as Stitcher, Overcast, or pretty much anywhere where you'll get your podcast. If you do know any good Android apps that you're currently using, please let me know at Tristan at TalkingWithTK.com. Always interested to hear where you actually are digesting your podcasts. Please connect with me online, Twitter and Facebook. You'll find me at TalkingWithTK, or my personal page is Tristan Cannell, spelled K-apostrophe-N-E-L-L, or Instagram, you'll find me at Tristan Nell. All right, guys, excited to bring this episode to you, and I introduce the moose, Adrian Skeggs. All right, guys, joining us live is Adrian Skeggs, now moose, as he's called. He's a former Wallaby. He's a former New South Wales and Queensland player for the, in the Super 10s. He's also played at Natal. Away from the game, I'm really impressed. He is a master of building relationships and networks. He plays a key role at the Rugby Business Network, Arrival Global, Arrival Global Magnify World, B Business, and he's also a prominent motivational speaker. And I welcome him to the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Bruce. mate. Yeah, here I am, mate. Yeah, yeah, you got me out of bed at this time of day. But anyway, we're all good to go. And look, all that sort of... Um, Colmates, I think, from where it all started. So I think, you know, coming from a small community, a little island, I'm sure we've got some good stories to peel back there. But I think the ingredients of everything is, you know, just being connectivity. I mean, these days people just, you know, sort of spend too much more time on the internet and things yeah. like that. Relationships are just the corner and, and sort of being a bit of a Santa Claus in regards to people being around you and having that flavour of sort of you never know what's going to happen next so certainly is an attraction, but I think you've got to create that value once you engage. And I think I've got a bit of a knack to it, but uh, well, let's see what happens. Yeah, Moose, you know, you used to be a teacher. How did you go from being a teacher to hitting the business world? Was that a key part of learning how to build relationships? Well, I think being a teacher gives you the, the groundwork of discipline and foundations of that sort of, you know, being structured and that. But I, I, I sort of came from a, a small community where I was always good with kids. Sport was my world. I had a great uh, opportunity to go to the Armadale School. I, uh, very intriguing how I got to go there, but anyway, yeah, that will cross to that. But for my whole thing there was um, when, I got, when I finished that, the rugby world leans itself to uh, very, very good, credible networks. And I think for my thing was 
continue on from my community, the island, the school and the whole thing, it was very easy to build as you were playing high level rugby to rebuild that connectivity. So for me it was a natural thing but I think the, the, the key to this is understanding and retaining those relationships, it's a big world out there. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm really intrigued about Lord Howe Island and how it all began. Can we take it back to the start? Let's take it even back to when your parents even got there. Tell me a little bit about your family background, exactly how the Skeggs arrived at, at Lord Howe. Well, my mother is, uh, was a third-generation descendant from the original people on the island, and my father actually went over to... Uh, we actually have a, a power station on the island, so he actually went to work on the island to run the power station, mm. and... Um, and uh, pardon the pun, but powers to be, he basically met my, met my mother and uh, married. So Skeggs is not an island name. I actually come from uh, the Thompson name, which is three or four families on the island. Okay. Which are, so when you go back there, you walk around the island, you're either meeting you know, the Wilsons or the Thompsons and they're alike. So, you know, it, it's something I'm very, very proud of. I think for me, you know, being born on the island and, and obviously coming from that small community and, and the things that I achieved, I, I, I just always go back there and enriched in excitement that I just know where my roots are and the, and, the, and the people and the place. It's very unique. Yeah, so Adrian, how many people generally are on the island in terms of population? Well, look, there's about 380 people live there full time and, you know, that goes from the island people looking after things such as the, the, the lodges and the tourism. But yeah. we've got 400 beds for tourism on the island. And look, really there's probably only July in the middle of the year where the winter season hits in where there's probably not 400 people on the island tourists. But you know, people have to book a year ahead in advance to go, Lord, how? It's not well known, but the thing is, we always get the repeat people come back because mostly they love the island, but more importantly, that's it's the people and the, it's the community they connect with. So there's lots of uniqueness, and I feel like I have a play, I have sort of part to play in that because a lot of those people are coming from the, in the corporate world in Sydney. I basically turn around and say, well, go, go give it a crack. It yeah. you know, means a lot to me. And when they get there, they just blown away. So I think, you know, people and place is very important to me. And, and I'm very, very, I suppose, everything very proud of it and always pump, pump its tyres in regards to when it's coming up out there. Yeah, I mean, it's when you eventually retire in 20 years' time or something like that. Are you eventually going to go back? Well, I've got a house there. Yeah, I've got a house on the island. It's the stuff. It's a uh, hundred yards from the ocean. That's the stuff. And obviously, yeah, been cool. married. Just going into my second year of marriage. So, people, there's there's another miracle. But certainly, I'm very very <laughs> blessed. I'm batting way above my weight in regards to uh, lovely Samantha. Uh, but look, I think from my my point of view is that you know I just want to go hard here. You know, use my networks well, get some really good outcomes. I'm in some good spaces with the technology company at the moment. So. Yes, look, I, th I would love to obviously go back there and live there, but the trouble is I'm so energetic around people. I think, that, you know, once you go through spending a lot of time with the local population of 380 then meeting the tourists, I think, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a way of, well, you know, do you want to spend all your time there or do you want, would you like to spend half that more off the island? But certainly down the track in my uh, later years, it's, uh, it would be a blessing to wake up there every day. Mm. So when you were a child, you know, I know you weren't a rugby player until you left the island, so what sort of activities were you up to back then? Oh, look, our education was the island. When we went to school, we never had TV. We never had we never had anything. We basically what we did is the island. We, that was your education. You made it your fun. And then for us, I mean, over here, you look at people. They go, they do different things. Over there, we'd go fishing. We'd we'd basically go surfing. We'd basically go looking shells. We'd go climb mountains. We'd do things. We're active, you know. And I think what it what for us was is the community actually did things like communal picnics and the whole thing. So. 
growing up in the island was great, but you know, obviously I got a little bit wayward in some of my adventures, and uh, you know, some interesting outcomes from that. And um, but I think for, for me, as a, being a little bit of a rebel on the island, and look, sadly, there's there's a there's another story that goes that my mother, who was basically uh, my my father, had sort of uh, they parted ways in my early days, and my mother was was basically bedridden with rheumatoid arthritis and numerous other uh, disorders and that sort of stuff that really sort of hemmed her down and she became very sort of sick so most of the time she spent that in bed so for me growing up on the island there was a you know and it was hard to think about but because I was sort of a bit embarrassed that you know I couldn't really expose my mother because she was so sick all the time but yeah. that how proud and how how loving she was of me being young you didn't realize that you didn't understand that love because all you wanted to do was just get out and do the damage out there with your mates and have a great fun. So I think the discipline, I, the, the, the discipline that uh, and the love that she gave, it wasn't sort of the discipline. So therefore, I sort of went a bit wayward in a few things, and uh, yeah, and it sort of culminated in some uh, interesting times uh, into my teens. Yeah. Before we talk about you leaving the island, I just actually want to talk to you about your mother because I was reading a few things, and on your Wallabies debut, I read that you had a picture of her and a picture yeah. of Howe Island in your two pockets. So obviously those two things that are obviously really dear to your heart. Well, I think, you know, one of the things, one of the things that sort of when I went, actually got chosen for the Wallabies, the great thing was they said, look, understand your lineage. And I think, look, sadly, this day and age, I don't see, I just don't see that out in the world of professional sport. You, you, know, you want to really respect where you've come from and who, who actually played in your positions and who played in your teams and that sort of stuff. Yeah. From my point of view, the ingredients of who, I, what, who and what I was... First of all, my drive and the ambition and, and the desire to achieve come from my mother. But the reason I wanted to also succeed because of that Lord Island community. I mean, the community actually gave me an opportunity um, yeah, when my mother was sick and basically when she died when I was young to basically go to the, to the Armadale School. Now, for all different reasons why we went there, that sort of stuff, we'll get back to that. But certainly from my point of view is... I, I respect my lineage. I certainly, uh, when my mother died, sadly, that was when I actually turned around and realised what I'd lost, and therefore I found this compounding passion to basically, you know, to uh, use all the ingredients she gave me to be the best I can, and suddenly, that, you know, that, that passion, the drive, the desire, and all the thing came into fruition, and, you know, the rest was a sort of, you know, history. Yeah. Are you the only sportsman or woman that have come professionally out of the old? Well, we've got a number of people who are sort of, who certainly have got profile over there. But sort of, you know, there's a, lot, there's a couple of guys who are, you know, doing well in the triathlons yep. and that sort of stuff. But the, the common thing is over there that when you go to secondary school, usually there's no there's no such school on the island. So a lot of guys go away to boarding schools or, or this stuff. And a lot of the guys have achieved sort of things. Look, obviously they haven't achieved a playing to Wallaby status, but look, there's still a lot of young guys over there who are sort of doing it. And I suppose part of my sort of remit to how I feel is if there's anything I can do to help them out mm. on that pathway. But yeah, look, I don't think it's too many Wallabies coming from a community of 400 people of a you know a little island, you know, 700 k's off the coast of New South Wales. So proud to be it, but I think. You know, all I want to do is just make sure I represent uh, you know, myself well, but more importantly, every time I get a chance to blow the island's flag, I, I certainly will. Yeah, when you did make your test debut, did they do something special back on the island? Did they know about it? Well, it's in, back in those days, you know, you're talking back... Uh, There's 90, no Twitter or anything like yeah, yeah, 90, I, th I, think, I think Twitter was a bird that was sitting in a tree, you know, <laughs> basically in those days, I mean... Technology, uh, I think over there with those things, we just borrow each other's landlines. I think that was about the extension of it. 
Look, what it was, what it was, originally in 89, I got, to, I got thrown out of the wilderness to play my first rep game for New South Wales, and it just happened to be the British Lions at North Sydney Oval. Jesus. And people couldn't believe it, and uh, I couldn't believe it. But New South, uh, Queensland were given a pretty tough run the week before. They got sort of a bit beaten up, and that was back in the Ackford and Dooley and uh, Brian Moore and days and those sort of things, you know, die youngs. And so it was Phil Kearns and my first game. And, uh, you know, so I was a, you know, wasn't the most sort of uh, good-looking guy, but at the end of the day, being that rough diamond, that's what they needed. Yeah. And so Phil Kearns and myself and uh, Harthill were at the front row for New South Wales. And I remember that, you know, we'd, we, we, going out to the game, that sort of stuff, just the sort of the enormity of... We, we playing at North Sydney Oval and, and, and just to sort of... To run out to a whole different atmosphere rather than Ringa Rats, who's, you know, I was so proud of. Um, to run out there in that sort of whole thing, it just... I went Obviously, went to another level, but what, what also went to another level was the expectation, the pace of the game, the whole thing. Mm. I had my ear taken off in the first minute of the game. I basically, in the second half, uh, got a, a little gentle tap on the head by one of their boots. So I was probably as open-minded as I was ever going to be when I come off the end of the field. But I, we lost the game by a field goal uh, in the end. And it was, and basically what happened was I ran off, I saw my sister that, but I had all my, my school, my Pitwater house kids sitting on halfway and they were going, come on, Mr Skeggs, Mr Skeggs, while he was actually having a fight, <laughs> having a fight with one of the other props. And uh, yeah, so it was uh, that was a pretty good thing. But yeah, but going to the next level, playing for Australia, uh, yeah, that just that just was uh, took it to a whole new level. Yeah. So back just to Armadale, so we can continue the story. Yeah. So Armadale, what's that? New South Wales country? What's yeah, the closest yeah, yeah, yeah. major capital? Well, if you go, if if you're northern New South Wales, so you've got Tamworth, Armadale up there, and the sort of up, up in the tablelands there. But if you sort yeah. of go, if you're going inland for say Coffs Harbour, Port Macquarie, you know, you're going up there. Um, the quite the funny thing, and I'll, we may as well sort of get on to how that how that do walk into that story. But you know, um, in those years of um, not being too disciplined, my mother being sick and that sort of stuff, I actually got into a, a little bit of a trouble there. I basically you know, the matches were something I really came a, you know fire. I thought was my best friend. Um, I basically uh, had a had a crack at a boat shed, uh, sorry, a, a, a tourist shack um, and two boat sheds and something else. So basically, within a matter of a year, I'd burnt down a few things on the island just to sort of watch them watch them go up in flames. So you're gaining a bit of a reputation over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was. Uh, so basically, what happened was due to uh, my being a little bit of a recalcitrant, in a way. The island saw the good in me, but more importantly, they saw the tremendous effort that my mother was singing. I mean, she was a gospel singer. She'd played state cricket. She was a she was a very talented lady, yeah. uh, but being crippled with it and stuff. So, I, I, you know, I just thought it was amazing for people to know, but the island community actually got together and sponsored me to go to the Armadale School. Wow. So when you get a community like that, you know, sending a, you know, private schools aren't that cheap. It's expensive, yeah. Yeah, but certainly... Um, I didn't know what that meant. All I knew that I'd, I was being taken off the island. I'd never left the island, you know, at 14. And going to Armadale, I didn't even know where Armadale was. Uh, so for me, going on a plane where I'd basically hopped off an island where I was, you, you know, going, having fun shark fishing and spending times around boats and then suddenly landing on a Armadale and, it was, and there was a frost there and I said well what's I said what's a frost and they said well the, the ground's frozen and I just thought of an ice cream so I sort of nearly got on the ground and licked the ground and stuff but it was 
I'd never worn sh- I'd, I'd never worn shoes in my life, mm. so I had all these different expectations about you know what was going on. But suddenly here I was, rather than being in a small community of Lord Island, I was studying in this massive school of five hundred plus kids. But the, the the discipline of putting on your your you know, being in uh, on time for breakfast, wearing uniforms, the whole things that stuff. The discipline I needed wasn't about right or wrong. I just needed some sort of discipline about being consistent in my life. Mm. And I had this tremendous ability in sport, but I think what I got from the Lord Allen community was this tremendous ability to communicate with people older and younger. Um, it was quite funny that in my later years of the Armadale School, uh, you know, that some of my best friends were actually my teachers. Okay. And, uh, you know, while I got the nickname Moose from being extraordinary big and that sort of stuff, um, that's how they literally related to me when I was in the schools, and they still do, so some of them are friends. But, you know, going to the Armadale School, I, was, uh, I got there, and, and, you know, we used to play cricket against the tourists on Lord Allen, which people might find surprising, but I actually was in the first 11 and year 8, so I spent five years in the first 11. I was captain in year 11 and 12. But then suddenly th- other things came along. So I was in the first basketball, won the tennis, and obviously rugby came along, and then, you know, the other things went. So I've been always had this passion about... I know what being a team player is. Mm. Um, I, I know that if you if you know your role, and this is probably rolling into probably the business world now, but if you know your capacity and your role on this sort of stuff, then um, you know that's. I think that's a, a blessing for now because I don't think a lot of people out there do now. And, and for me, I just knew my what I had to do. But then suddenly, what happened was I, I was more because the young people looked up to me because I was achieving so much. Um, I realised that I was doing little things on the island like mentoring the young kids. And that's something that I've always wanted to, you know, keep going as well. But yeah, look, the Armadale School was—it made me. Uh, it made me a lot of reasons because it, it took me away from the comfort of Lord Howe, but made me realise the value of Lord Howe in the community. Mm. It gave me the, the discipline of just being consistent in my life, and from that, I think that then it, that, that sort of charged me up for a future and the, you know, where I wanted to go. That I was sort of more, uh, I suppose, the foundations of, uh, was pretty compelling to go the next step. Yeah, what were you like in class? Oh, look, you know, I didn't throw dusters or do anything like that, but, yeah, I, I wasn't... Uh, I used to take a bit to calm down in class, but a few, <laughs> a few of the teachers, basically, uh, I don't think I got hit over the head with a you know, duster or anything. But, no, look, it was... For me, it was, you know, you got to understand, I, my, I had three guys in my class on Lord Allen. Yeah. You know, I suddenly gone to a class of 30 people. You know, it was just a whole different world. But, again, you just sort of got the way. And, yeah, and for me, it was... Yeah, look, it was a struggle. I think that... What broke my heart was being away from my mother. It was it was it was an extremely sad thing. I was, you know, even now it sort of brings a little bit of thing because I didn't really tell her I loved her because I just I just took her for granted. Mm. And the other thing is because she was so sick, it was, you know, I didn't realise that for me that uh, I had a thing to do. And I used to come home most afternoons and massage her toes and massage her hands because they were so deformed yeah. and that stuff before I could go out and play. So. You know, it's uh, I suppose a lot, tremendous life lessons from going from uh, you know from the from the island sort of thing to the school and then going back there. And I used to run, you know, obviously a big part of that now is is what I gave back. So for me, I used to go back and run fun runs and triathlons and parties and all sorts of things. And I always, you know, I always, whenever there's a chance to sort of help out the island in any form, I always do it. So you know, I, I, I don't owe them, but I think at the end of the day, it's just something that's in my veins. Yeah. Moose, how old were you when your mum passed away? I was 14. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I had no, basically no parents and, uh, 
my sister looked after me, and uh, which was fantastic, and then obviously uh, helped me uh, in when I went to the, the Australian College of Physical Education in Sydney, and then and, and what really sort of embraced me then, which is probably one of the reasons I st went to rugby, you know, full time, was I got a, I got tangled up with the Ringa Rugby Club, and you know, for me, another great sense of community, and that's why you know last year when they won it. It wasn't a case of what they won on the pitch. They, they, they're winners off the pitch because they know how to galvanise that community and stuff. And the embracement of uh, a person, doesn't matter whether they're playing first grade down to fourth grade Colts, I think at the end of the day they're part of it. So I think that's, that's an essence of sport for me. That's a journey that, that certainly Ringer's got well. And, and, and for me, I, again, it's another part of my life that sort of uh, gave me the foundations. Guys, just a quick break in today's episode with the Moose. Last week, we brought you one of the legends of the NRL in Brett Kenny. Here is a little quick snippet from our chat with Bert. I mean, I, look, I, I didn't really know much about Jack. I'd heard a few things and, and um, I was sort of really shit scared of him, really, and, and um, when he first arrived. and He used to wear big coats and, you know, I'd heard... chains and stuff too, didn't he? Sorry? He had chains and everything, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, no, no, not so much the, the chains, but he had like the gold watch yeah, and, that's and right. stuff. And, he, and I used to, you know, you'd hear stories that he'd been with, you know, associated with um, the underground and underworld <laughs> and all this sort of stuff and, and criminals and and that. But I, I, he used to do the, the, I used to have the involvement with the putty cards and betting and stuff yeah. like that. And SP booking he used to do, I think, as well. So. Um, yeah, and I used to think all oh, these big cages probably got guns and stuff in there, you know. But, but he was—he was, was a great man, and, and um, but yeah, he just—he just brought in a bit more professionalism with the with the place, and he was—he was that far ahead of his time. It was unbelievable. Please go back and check out that episode. Plenty of league and union players all over the back catalogue. So please go and check out a few episodes. If it's your first time here, or if you haven't yet. Please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher or Overcast or you'll find it all online at www.talkingwithtk.com. Please connect with me, Twitter, Facebook, I'm at TalkingWithTK or Instagram, you'll find me at Tristan Nell. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. Yeah, just before we go on to the rats, in terms of finding rugby, was it what a former Wallaby that picked you out and said, yeah, 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 yeah he saw something special? Yeah, yeah. well, he's, you know, probably one of the biggest influences in my life. And when I got to law, so when I left Lord Howe to go to the Armel schools, I mm. bumped into the great John Hipwell. Yeah. And, you know, John Hipwell, you know, it was quite funny, but, you know, he, he, I, I just didn't know who he was because I'd never been exposed. You've got to remember, we didn't have TV and Lord Howe didn't have anything. So we didn't, and I didn't know rugby. All we heard was rugby league, and that was back in the day when you know Newtown were in the comp. Okay. So it's a long time ago. So when I come over here to rugby, I mean, this guy was talking to me, and he said, "Look, you're big as a house. You should get out there and do this and do that." So I did it, but you know, I didn't know what it was, and you know, I, I, was, I, was, I was sort of a little bit ill disciplined because I didn't know what I was doing. But back home, if you got a little bit intimidated, you're young, you just sort of react in a certain way, which is probably not not due to the laws, but. Mm. So what I got from John Hipwell is suddenly I got to understand, first of all, who he was. But more importantly, uh, the great thing about that is what he represents. And I've never met a more... There's probably three guys uh, that I've met in my life who are probably the most humble guys in, in rugby, and John Hipwell would probably number one. John Eels the next one, a guy called Henry Hannibal played for the Springboks. It was, they, you know, they just, whatever they did, they went about their work. It wasn't about anything, it was about them. Uh, it was always about, you know, embracement and the whole thing. And, 
and John did a lot for me in regards to uh, you know just galvanising my purpose and reason and, and, and stuff. And then and look, rugby was a byproduct of that. So yeah, very very lucky. Yeah. So originally you were a second rower, not a front rower. So yeah, because you were lean, were you lean? Ah, uh, well, I was just as tall. Tall streak of misery when I got there. I was quite because all my surfing days, I you know I just surfed before I went to Armadale, and then when I got there, I was quite a tall guy and, and stuff, and so now yeah, tallest where I'm now. But um, yeah, and then so they said, uh, look, yeah, jump in here and stuff. And in those days, I mean, scrummaging wasn't uh, you weren't going out you know Carter Farms grinding down the Welsh. It was you know schoolboy rugby. It was a bit it was a little bit different. So. I sort of got in the second row, you know, I, uh, I wasn't too good at jumping to any great heights and stuff, but it's certainly what I was as a tough bugger, and I went out and did the damage where I had to do that, and, you know, being as, you know, as big as a house when I was 14, I never changed that all the way through, so yep. there was a sort of a, you know, for me it was a, I had to make that presence feel and the thing, so, yeah, look, it was very, it was very blessed, and that obviously changed when I came to Sydney, and, uh, and, that, and that sort of stuff, but certainly that's where I started. Yeah, so when John was obviously bringing you through, he obviously saw some talent in you. Did you believe in yourself from the start that you could become a professional? Oh, professional rugby wasn't even around then, mate. I did, we didn't, rugby only went professional in 95. Yeah, I, I well, even to a standard that you could take it so then people... Oh, mate, I, I, I got, uh, you know, in, in year 10 I got selected for New South Wales Country Schoolboys. And, you know, uh, as again, our first game was against New Zealand Schoolboys. Mm. A week later we were playing the Irish Schoolboys. I mean... You don't get in a bigger dance floor than those at that at that age of your life, and then you know suddenly. So I'm sitting there going, "Wow, wow, wow!" But the the, the key to this is, is is if you're taking yesterday's work to do today's work, then you know that's not good enough. And then what I do what I do well is I you know I, I rose to the occasion. So for me, it was about if you put yourself on those dance floors, what do you do? What are your ingredients to get yourself there? And most of mine was determination and just taking the moment. You yeah. know? And so I got. So you've always been kind of a risk taker. Well, look, it's a, yeah, certainly risk, entrepreneur, all that sort of stuff. I mean, my risk is my risk today is my IP's people. Yeah. Uh, so for me, back then it was about, well, who am I? And so I had to turn around. I not understanding. So well, I'd rather go poke someone in the eye than go out there and sort of stand and say hello to them. So that's my my whole way of being there was just well, yeah, well, this is like an adventure for me. But at the end of the day, how good can I be? Or well, if you don't sometimes push it, you don't know, do you? So. Uh, but yeah, look, I've, I had a few, a lot of people sort of, you know, I was never the most, uh, I was a bit of, been a rough diamond for a long time in regards yeah. to that, but certainly I, in, in, in previous, probably in the last five or six years, I've learned a lot about that and, and, and um, you know, how you put things across to people and sort of stuff, but sometimes you rush to brush, you know, if you say the first thing that comes to your mind, you've got to be careful, you, you know, how you get it back. So, uh, no, no, it's, uh, I... Uh, I've uh, yeah, you know, I've sort of when I tucked my head in the second row there, I thought, well, you know, there's got to be a better, there's got to be a better world out there. And suddenly, obviously, that changed when Slaggy Miller got hold of me in, in Sydney. Yes, there. but the bright lights of Sydney, it must have been pretty, just out there for a kid that come from Lord Howe to then country in the school. What did you make of the bright lights of Sydney when you first? Ah, uh, well, look, I, I think going on the northern beaches, being in, uh, you know, I was, I was sort of in Warrywood and that sort of stuff there, and then obviously you went down and lived at Harbourwood. It's not necessarily the bright lights of Sydney. It was just a lot of people and uh, just a lot of things. And I, and again, I love I love being around people. So for yeah. me, it was about okay. Well, look, there's a there's a footy side of me. What am I doing? Well, I went to teachers' college, yes, and stuff. And what can I do on top of that? So I went and I was doing working at the you know at the D Y Hotel and all this sort of stuff. So you just filled your life up. 
and but you you always made sure that you know for me it was the, the great thing everything I was doing I was around with other people so it wasn't my journey it was my journey with people whereas mm. on the island you sort of made that journey but sometimes you didn't have a lot of peers okay you had a lot of younger people a lot of older people so yeah no it, it was um, I don't think it was really the big city it was just more the excitement of more people to talk to and catch up with and you know. <laughs> yeah, so the opportunity with the rats, was it a situation where you just turn up, you start training, and then you trial, or was someone that... Well, I, well I, was, I was living at Warrywood. I was staying at Warrywood with some friends of mine who used to live on the island, and uh, and I just waddled down the road to... I was just down the road to Ringer Park, and I was sort of sitting in the grandstand, and they are going to play at Manly Oval next week. And I thought, oh, well, that sounds interesting. So I'd go down, and the, the guy said, you want to come have a bit of a run? You know, just come around around to training. And suddenly I was playing third grade. So I just came from down watching playing schoolboy rugby. I actually running around uh, Manly Oval playing third grade. And for me, it was, wow, what a daunting experience, just even third grade. I mean, here I was playing with adults. and uh, yeah, so, some tough, tough yeah, blasters yeah, yeah, in that Oh, league. yeah. Well, you always get, you always get somebody going, going up the top of the tree, but most importantly, you get some old dogs coming down. Yeah. And, they, and they certainly see a young guy on the pitch, and they know to poke you in the eye the right way. So those first couple of games, they went after you pretty hard then? Oh, look, I only played two games, but it was just a fill-in. But, uh, but, but for me, it was, uh, yeah, man, it was a rock the casualty it was sort of experience. I, uh, you know, for me, I, I just got, I was just excited. And, uh, you know, I did well. And and, um, and they were all over me to sort of say, well, what are you doing next year? And, you know, we'd love to have you. So, yeah, I, I, I turn around, my friends are up Warrywood and that sort of stuff. So it stuck. Yeah. And I came there, and it was one of the best decisions I ever made. Yeah, you talked about a couple of influences before. Was there anyone major at the Rats that really helped turn your turn your career around there? Look, I think I think I you know as you said before, I played for New South Wales, Queensland. I played for uh, Natal Sharks and Coastaller World, and I was very lucky to go on a Wallaby tour. I probably would say the the greatest rugby team I've ever played was the '83 Colts side, okay. Ringa Rats. Um, Who was in that one? Well, we, there's a lot of players like there was Bruce Frame, who's probably played Australian sevens. There's, there's a couple of other things, but, it, but, it was, but the main thing about the whole thing was that you know we played we, we played hard, we trained hard, and we certainly partied hard. And I think what I, what I got was we had a the, probably one of the greatest guys I had was involved with a guy called Tony Hicks. And Tony Hicks, while he was a banker and that stuff, he just knew the power of sort of alignment yeah. and power of bringing people together and. He used to drive down and drive into training and the whole thing, and then I got connected up with, with the great uh, Ellie Bennett, who was you know one of the great foundation folklores of uh, and great heroes of, of setting Ringer up to what it is today and that sort of stuff. So I got uh, you know I think Ellie Bennett for me was just this cornerstone of the epitome of passion about what club was. And you know, look, he was he, he, he was he was great, and certainly to live with him for. Uh, six or seven years of an experience because everything in the place was green so if I wanted a reminder of who I was playing for he certainly did that yeah. Tony Hicks was certainly a good one but I was blessed to have an introduction to the great Slaggy Miller uh, and Slaggy Miller for people who don't know is you know he's obviously an ex, a famous ex-wallaby who basically uh, very probably one of the most toughest people ever there I mean when they told me the story that they broke his, he broke his foot on the last wallaby game of uh, one of the tours um, and they were playing the Barbarians the next week. He basically uh, turned up, cut the front of his shoe and played with his shoe open. Jesus. Against the Barbarians. Yeah. Still playing first grade at 41. So he's the one that sort of grabbed me. And obviously at that stage, Topo Rodriguez was uh, a famous wallaby who obviously was playing a ring at that stage. And 
They both looked at me and said, look, your looks are pretty ordinary. We need to do something with them and uh, we think you should endeavour to get in the darkness of the front row. Mm. And, um, and really basically I said, well, what's that like? And then the great Tony Slaggy Miller just grabbed me, you know, put his arm around me and nearly tore my head off and said, well, we expect that every, you know, for 80 minutes a game. So I thought, well, you know, that sounds a bit dangerous, but I'll give it a crack. And, um, yeah, so, you, again, it was with Topo and that sort of stuff there. And then uh, the ingredients which really sort of hit home was Rod McQueen. I mean, Rod McQueen came into the, you know, he came in to learn his apprenticeship, you know, in the second grade. Mm. And I sort of mostly sort of into second grade then, just learning, still learning the front row thing. Um, and Rod, Rod's organisational thing, I mean, we had a, you know, we had psychologists, we had trainers, we had everything, and, and he took that on to the Wallabies, and that's why he's successful. But I think what I, what I got from all of them was a sort of the impact of saying, okay, well, look, you need to find yourself. So Slaggy said, you need to do this. I'm not going to teach you anything. You just need to go out and bury, your health, bury yourself out there week in, week out, and find mm. your own way and come back to me. And so there's that, but then there was the discipline of the Rod McQueen, you know, the, the Rod McQueen about, you know, this is your role and this is, you need it, your fitness, you need to do this and stuff. So I think, look, there's a package there of people that are certainly, from my point of view, uh, you know, were very, you know, great. You know, playing with guys like Steve Libri and, and uh, you know, Pearlie and, you know, and Temple and all these guys, and then going back, why Ringer won the Premiership last year and seeing all those guys, you know, People said, oh, you guys are part of building this to today. I said, no, we weren't. We, all we were, we were very lucky. We were very lucky to be together. We had a couple of years where we uh, were in grand finals. and Ramwick was certainly way better in those days, all the Ellers and that stuff. But, it, but it, what it, for me, Ringo was, uh, again, another part of the foundation of, uh, you know, why, why sort of built my rugby up, but certainly the 83 Colts side was the best team I've ever played with. Yeah, so how do you make the jump from Raringa to then getting, you said in New South Wales, your debut was against the British Lions. Yeah. How yeah, did well, you find out about a debut back then? Well, it was great. Well, we played Ramwick on the, on the Saturday and uh, I'd come off the game and basically we'd beaten them and we'd beaten them up. It was just one of those things where we got on top of them. It, wasn't, it was pretty rare in those days of Ramwick, but certainly we got on top of them. I was just lying on the ground, pretty euphoric out the back from the whole thing, and then um, uh, Dick Laffin came up, the New South Wales coach, and said, well, I know what you're doing next week, but you're playing in a different jersey and, you know, playing for New South Wales. And so I'd played a number of sort of invitational games and that, and I thought, oh, it was great. But So there I was going to a whole new level, and I just didn't know what to expect. And, um, you know, I think basically it's like... Uh, you know, I know what I was good at, and I certainly know what I wasn't good at. I was never fast. I was never, you know, I was. Never, I just, I was just a dog who went out there and did my job, and that's what mm. you needed to be done. So when you go to sort of sometime professional training, it was quite funny when I went to the Wallaby train, and they teach you how to run and the stuff. Though I mean, some guy sat on the sideline and said, "I look like a safe rolling downstairs the way I run." You know, it's just pretty, <laughs> it's just pretty, you know, it's pretty ordinary. But got the job done. Well, that's it. You know, you don't get to that level from. Uh, but I knew my limitation, but more importantly, I knew my strengths. And I think at the end of the day, if you do that job and have something left over for the team, that's why you play for the play it a Guys, just another quick break in today's episode. If you're a huge rugby fan, well, I've got a whole back catalogue of past and present Wallabies for you to check out. The likes of C.I.R. Fainga, Dean Mum, David Campisi, Nathan Sharp, Clyde Rathbone, Nathan Charles, Matt Tamua, Carmichael Hunt make up a pretty stellar lineup of Wallabies that have come on the show. We've also had plenty of NRL guys on the show if you're into that, or pretty much any sport 
the likes of Pat Cash, Robbie Madison, Mark Hunt. So please go and check out the back catalogue. Please tell your family and friends about the show. If you haven't yet, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, or you can find them all online at www.talkingwithtk.com. All right, guys, let's get back to our chat with the moose. Yeah. So, so how many years did you end up staying in New South Wales for? Oh, I only had two seasons there because really, from my point of view, the biggest issue I had was I had you and Mackenzie, uh, Kernsey and, and Daly. Uh, yeah, I, wasn't okay. getting, I wasn't getting any games. Um, and I was teaching at Pitwater House uh, over at Collaroy there, fantastic school. And look, some of the kids that come out of that school are my friends today and they're just so compelling. Great people. And, but... Again, it was like a little community, like going back to Lord Howe. But, yeah. but I think from point of view, was, I was ambitious. I'd had a taste. Um, we went out and played. In those days, Sydney was a... We, we were actually... Sydney was probably one of the strongest brands of Australian rugby. And I had the uh, opportunity to play with the Sydney side against France. And I was playing hooker. Eddie Jones was my hooker. And we had Woody Offengau. And we had David Knox. And we went out and beat them by 20 That's points. It. But again, if you ever want to... Um, you know, um, you know, talk about uh, great opportunities and great occasions, uh, mate. It was just, it was fantastic. And uh, so for me, it was just that. So I wanted more of that. Yeah. And I realised that, you know, I just didn't feel like that uh, I was going to give them that there. And then basically I went up, because I was a teacher, I thought, well, what can I do? And so I just, I, I went out a chat to uh, John Conley up there and stuff. And they basically said, yeah, look, we can get your teaching jobs. We can do that sort of stuff. And up, and up there they had Dan Crowley and Lily Crap and a few of the guys, but uh, most of them are pretty injury prone at that stage. So uh, I I decided to look, well, give it a crack and go up there. And, and you know, for me, it took a while to get in there, but certainly what I knew and, and what I'd know today about Queensland, and, and, and I, I suppose people can take this as a grain of salt, but they certainly got an arrogance about them in regards to being Queenslanders first, mm-hmm. and not, you know, and then obviously Australian second. I think the biggest thing about a big city like Sydney is that sometimes they get ahead of themselves and think about the big picture of being a wallaby and being this before they actually be part of what they actually really are now, which is being a state player or, or a club player. Might yeah. be the reason why for so much say a state of origin success. On well, it is. I, well. I, it is. I think what it is is that less is more, but they certainly mm. know how to drive home that spirit. And I think what happens is the, the trust factor of consistent selections and the whole thing. And look, that was back in the day. Look, they're, they're a bit iffy now, but certainly what I... I realised they use their resources well. They use their alumni well. They used uh, this. They, they seem to be just so much better in regards to that. Uh, there and for me, you know, uh, they seem to be more embracing about me as a person. So going and getting a teaching job, I taught at the Anglican Church Grammar School, and we had, you know, heaps of uh, obviously ex, you know, wallabies and that come through. So yeah, it was fantastic. And there I was, part of another boarding school. I was actually part of one of the boarding houses there, and the kids used to love my stories and love the things so I sort of did a vicious circle in these little community things but certainly enjoyed that you know Queensland was very compelling and, and going away and playing you know uh, you know winning Super 10s and, and going to places like uh, South America where you know you're playing with Horan and Little and Liner and, and you've got John Eels as his second row and all this stuff I mean it's an amazing experience and if you lose, you lose together. Mm. Uh, if what you... was it like playing a Ballymore back in the day? Because that was... Oh, yeah. Well, Ballymore, I mean, again, what we need to be mindful of the fact is that sometimes, 
you know, there's, 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 I mean, rugby's full of very traditionalised people, mm. and people love what they know. And at the end of the day, if they people see out there and they, you know, get get something online or get this and stuff, the change, I suppose, what it is is that you know, Ballymore had things like the hill. It had things like the uh, your Bundy Bar. It had all sorts of things where it wasn't just about the 80 minutes. And, you know, people want to go to sport now for an experience. Um, going sitting in a stadium and watching a game, and if the game's good, bad or indifferent, you know, you can go home sort of feeling all that. But if you can go home because, yes, whatever, the, the game didn't turn out, but you've still gone and connected up with people and caught up with people and met new people, well, that's what Ballymore was good at. Yeah. And I think from my point of view is that, you know, I know Al Graham, who runs so, uh, you know, Suncorp up there. It's probably the best stadium in Australia, you know, to where it's situated and the whole thing about it. But, you know, tribalism is something that 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 people want to be near the game, but also the the players need to be near the people. And I think sometimes, what, what when you go back to a ground like Ballymore, it's got a purpose. And you see a lot of the you know the, the grounds in New Zealand where they take it away from the big ones and put them in smaller ones. And I think. You get an embracement of that community, but also you get an embracement of the connectivity, you know, because people are very nearer to each other. Whereas these days, it's sort of very distant, and um, you know, it's done in different ways around, you know, the, the corporate and social media and stuff like that. So you know, it was yeah, Ballymore was yeah, massive, massive, great, great, great times. Yeah. So then the Wallabies situation comes up. What what year was that? Ninety three. Ninety three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, uh, crowds like he did is uh, most of the time he you know, he got a puncher in one of his tyres and he sort of come up short. And, he, and so the idea was for me was to you know was to be part of that. But certainly from the um, I went on there and on the tour and stuff. And we went on a we went on a tour to well, was going to France, but they actually had an exhibition game in America and Canada. Mm. And, you know, it's sort of really, really strange that people, you know, when you go to, you know, go get your kit and go do all sorts of stuff, um, it was quite unusual. You get down there, you had a Cobra hats, you know, you had dries of bones, you had stuff. And I, and I thought, well, what's that to do with France? But because we're going to sort of Calvary and all sorts of stuff, there was a stampede and the whole thing. So, so yeah, look, we, uh, that was all exciting to me because every time I played any team or any jerseys or all this stuff, I used to swap my jerseys. Okay. And when I'd swapped them, I'd always take them back and give them to my mates on the island. So I used to have... I, so geez, you've got none left? No, no. I, I've kept a few personally, but for yeah. me, I, most of the time, if I swapped a jersey or something, I'd always take it home and, and give it to my mates on the island and stuff. Because, you know, I, I, it was a privilege for me. Mm. And for me, it was a privilege to turn around and say, well, look, you weren't there, but, you know. And look, we had, you know, the amazing things that, in life in, in rugby, you know, it's all not all plain sailing. I mean, I played a, that uh, Sydney game against France. I packed against this guy called Bouet, and he was a fantastic prop, and he gave me a bit of a hard time that night. But they, they weren't allowed to basically drink on that tour. And sadly, what actually happened is uh, the team went to Newmere after the game, and uh, Bouet actually choked on his vomit between his bed and died. Oh, wow. So, you know, for me, you know, there's, uh, that happens. Uh, and for me, it was just one of those unusual things that I actually swapped his jersey uh, with him and stuff. So I, I have that jersey for me. It's more about, you and know... Uh, is that one still with you? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's more, more about the respect of, um, you know, of not only playing with, but, you know, obviously for me, there's a guy that's not around anymore to sort of celebrate, uh, you know, his world as well as, you know, the, that opportunity. And 
one of the guys who was second row on that night, Oliver Rumar, is a French captain. I play with him the Tail Sharks, and we're probably he's probably my top ten and best mates. So we still keep in contact and we talk about time. So yeah, it's good. Yeah. So the Wallabies tour was Sydney for France, then it was Canada in Canada. No, no, we went we went to we played America in Riverside, yep. and then we played Canada in uh, Canada in Calgary, Calgary, and then went to France. We went to France and actually played over there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it was just. So look, I, was a, I never got to play a test match. My whole thing, I mean, those days, you know, going when you're playing Canada and those, I don't know what they stipulated, but we, 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 we played those games and that stuff. But I think from my point of view is when you, when you turn around, it doesn't matter where the white lines are in the world and, and then suddenly you're actually going out there, you're playing a game of rugby, you have to respect it. But when you actually turn around, you're actually doing for your country. Mm. It ignites a whole lot of, uh, you, know, you know, I suppose excitement and, and direction in your mind about basic and the expectations. But I think at the end of the day, what's good about that is that there's a lot of, uh, you know, I was sort of basically, in, you know, I was in the, the dirt trackers, which is basically the second team, and I was very, very blessed to have the great Bob Templeton and Jake Howard, you know, and uh, my God, what legends and stuff. But I think what, what I got there was when you're playing with the Pat Howards and all these guys, um, they they knew what you were doing, expecting your first couple of games. So what happened was they just said, "Hey, look, just treat us another, game. treat us another game, treat us another game. Just look at us, look at us. Don't worry about them." And that's what it was. I think uh, what I learned at Wallaby level is that you you have to have trust in the systems, and you definitely have to have trust in the people. And I think that if you look at the business world, that's they both of those are missing, uh, and they, they're sort of they're the ingredients that I've taken along with in that world. But yeah, no, it's great. Great time. What about the experience of staying there with your mates and the national anthem player for the first Well, you know, it's a bit, it's a bit, you know, typical island boy. I just sort of got ahead of myself. It was a freezing day in Canada, freezing. So I just got out there, and everyone's got their tracks, and I was just playing my playing kit, and I nearly froze to death because you know their their national anthem went on for a, you know for eternity, and ours obviously it was, but. I was sort of seeing the most important thing is I had the photos of mum in one pocket and the photos of the island in the other pocket. I was, mm. I was, I was concentrating on that so much, but I was just sitting there and I just didn't realise. I was just, I was nearly getting pneumonia just sort of standing on the spot. But I think when you're seeing the national anthem and, you're re- and you've got that euphoria about understanding where you've come from, but more importantly, when you're looking left and right and you understand who you're playing with, Mate, there's no bigger, better and better experience. It was uh, for an island, a little island boy. For me, mate, it just took me to, uh, took me to a whole new place, and uh, and I totally respect that thing. And I think for me, it was, um, you know, when that, when that, when the, when it stopped, it, it gave me a sense of I, I was elevated. I was mm. ready to go. So it was great. So when you got back to Australia, like you talk about being elevated, you know, mm. your sense of confidence and your sense of achievement must have just been through the roof. Well, I think I think at the end of the day, it's like the sense of being. If you're not in the moment and you don't do your best and you know, stuff. Now, I, look, I was never a fashionable player. I just did my job. But I, it doesn't matter. I played one game or you know, 100 games. I think just playing for Australia, I just knew what I'd achieve. But more importantly, I'd look back before you know. I, I did. It wasn't about turning around and saying, "Well, you know, there's you know, I played for Australia." I think what I did is I looked back and I basically, in my mind, I looked at all the. All the people, all the influences, and all the opportunities where I was, where I was given this, and I think just respecting it, you know. I think when you when you sit back there and, and the you know the why I love Lord Howe and I pump it all the time is because I wouldn't have ever got it if I didn't get to go to Armadale, yeah, you know. True. So for me, you've got to respect that and and who I was in regards to achieving. I wouldn't have got that if my mother didn't give me those ingredients as well. So 
Yeah, I, I spent a lot of time respecting where I was and that sort of stuff, you know, from, from being on that tour, but more importantly about it, sort of, um, then a sort of the dust settled on, say, what's next? And, um, you know, I, I made some pretty tough decisions because um, I didn't feel confident at that stage that I was in the mix to be anything more, be further wallaby. Mm. Um, I felt like, you know, 93 came along and then and, and sort of 94, we, we went through... Um, you know, Queensland, we won the Super 10s and that sort of stuff. But basically in that time, it was still amateur game. Um, I'd been approached to, uh, by, in South Africa, by the Natal Sharks. And I, you know, just being a person of adventure, um, I, I, you know, when you're touring and playing rugby and stuff and you're going to Kings Park, where, you know, basically it's the biggest, you know, biggest game over there, you know, bar the soccer. I mean, you're running out in front of 45,000 people who are just, that's the sport. I mean, in Australia, we're just basically logged with NRL. You've got soccer, you've got AFL, you've got the whole thing. I mean, rugby at them, even now, and it has been for a long time, it's, it's, you've got to get people's headspace, you've got to give them the opportunity, and if you don't create that experience or good experience for them, you've got to be compelling. Whereas you go to South Africa, that's all it is. And uh, I was blown away. I was, you, know, I was, uh, you know, I was over there basically supporting a guy called Andrew uh, Adrian Garvey who was a test prop but he struggled against some of the bigger props so I was actually got employed to be a mentor coach as well so I, was, I worked for the Tile Rugby Union coaching coaches and that sort of stuff so there was a lot of sort of things that I inherited but obviously being part of the Tail team and that stuff was very special and they trained hard and we were doing that full time so, so I wasn't teaching Mm. And uh, mate, we we train sort of six or seven times a week. So the Afrikaners, I certainly know what they've been through in regards to toughness. But yeah, great, great time. And I ended up in Cape Town doing some coaching down there. So four years in South Africa was uh, was just a legendary part of my fibre of my life. Yeah, so you would have been there for the World Cup. Well, that's what that was a great thing. I got a two-year contract. The '95 was the World Cup, so I'm sort of sitting here going, you know, how good is this? Mm. And um, I think when you've got a rugby mad country and, and the stadiums they had and the whole thing there, you know, and, and also the sense of variety there. Look, yeah. people talk about, you know, it's not a safe country. This Well, it is what it is. But when you've got, I suppose, you know, 150,000 foreigners coming into the country, they certainly ramped up a lot of security things. But what, they, what people did is sort of stuck together. It is just such a great place in certain areas such as Cape Town and obviously the, you know, the... Um, Obviously, the going out the game farms, the, the the adventure you can have there, as well as going to these stadiums and seeing the rugby, massive experience, massive experience. And I was lucky not only to to be there and be part of it, and and to, and obviously catch up with this, but also the, all the incoming people go out there and show them around. So, a massive great experience. And obviously, you know, I, you know, sitting there being lifelong friends of people like Zinni Brook and all these guys. Yeah. It's very, very blessed to, to you know, you, 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 tell, you ask them about, you know, what was it like then and that sort of stuff. But so, certainly for me, um, I knew both sides of the fence, but it was just being around, it was just euphoric. When you saw Jonah Lomu for the first time, because obviously he changed the, the game, the way rugby was played for a winger. Yeah. That all happened in that 95 ball cup. What did you first make of Jonah when you first saw him? Well, you know, I sort of... It put a whole different age to me about the old uh, safe rolling downstairs, but certainly he was a safe, but he wasn't rolling. He made this guy was just a, you know, he was a juggernaut. But I think it's the the key to this is you've got to make sure you use him well. And I think what the All Blacks did is they know how, they knew how to use him well. I mean, bring him off the blind side into uh, inside the fly half or, or or off you know second and third phase. 
I mean, he's always going to get you over the gain line and that sort of stuff. But I think from my point of view, the power of him and that sort of stuff, what happens is that people spend more time worrying about him and what that did is freed up other places on the pitch. So they used him well. He was a juggernaut. He certainly was a beast in regards to some of those runs he did and stuff. And he, and he, and he, I think he was one of those sort of finds in world rugby, the, the uniqueness of a player and what they could do and achieve. And, um, you know, it was that's probably why the World Cup was was good for people like him coming along. You know? mm. What about now? Does any players really stand out that you really like watching? Oh, uh, look, I think... I think there's a lot of players that you know I, you know I, I like I, I just like people people are really consistent. Mm. And I think there's some really you know there's some there's some good players out there and the stuff. I just think for me is that you know if you can go out there and and people again can rise the occasion, be a better player each week, and then obviously if it's a leadership role or whatever. They are, look, there is some there's some fantastic players out there, but you know the, the game's different now. And uh, they can be a fantastic player. I mean, you know, it's um, like Izzy. I mean, Izzy, they put him on the wing this week, which was, which was staggering because he needs to get the, he needs to get his hands on the ball. But then suddenly, what happened was, he did get his hands on the ball. Um, and and look, the 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 tactics which they use, which is the up and under stuff. Well, look, it certainly used against the Rebels, but it's not going to work against the Kiwi sides. But I think, from my point of view, is. There's guys like him with sheer talent, but then they have to be complimented by people around them. So it's a different game now. Um, you know, playing with a guy like uh, Noddy Liner, you know, and he had Horan and Little outside. Well, they were... I mean, Timmy Horan can shoot a pass just with his, with his arms 20 metres like a bullet. It was just fascinating. But, you know, Michael Liner just knew when and what to do. So for me, it, 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 everyone's got an air. But then you get the people like Sam Scott Young, staunch... Queenslander, just tough as teak, you know, brutally arrogant to uh, on on the field. But what he did was he just he, he he was a hard guy that took the attention away from everybody else. Yeah. And he'd be one of the first guys you'd sort of for me I'd pick an aside because you knew what you're going to get every week, you know. But uh, yeah, no, look, there's, there's certainly some talented players running around, but I think yeah, it's not about it's not about me anymore. It's about we. Hmm. What about in trying to improve Australian rugby? Because last year in the Super 15. We didn't, we didn't win a game against a Kiwi team. Was, I know we've lost the team, but in terms of trying to win games and get competitive, because we've got a World Cup next year in Japan, yeah. how are we going to do that? Well, look, there's an on-field and there's an off-field thing to this. And, and I think what, what we've got to realise also is that if, you, if we're going to align our stakeholders, I mean, Australian rugby now is in a situation where I think it's great Raylene Castle coming in. I think it's a new CEO. It's a breath of fresh air and stuff. But I think one of her biggest roles is to get all the, is to pull all the stakeholders of rugby together. Um, we, we, we really have to, you know, while rugby's got the old school tie and this stuff, what comes of that is egos and agendas. Mm. And, you know, for me it's about, well, why am I in the game or stuff? A lot of people were in the game because of what it did for them back then. But back then is sometimes they've got to turn it. How can they turn that? Ingredients of what was good for them and how can they be part of something now? Whereas what, what people tend to do is just go back to their instincts. Yep. So I think what happens is you, you, if your instincts in regards to being collectively off the pitch, then you, you can create value in all different ways. Um, I, you know, for, my, for my being, rather than coaching, I run the Rugby Business Network. Mm. And it's a very compelling network, great network. But what we try and do is we try and broach people of interest, their uniqueness, uh, and we've had people like, you know, um, Stuart May of the Navy saying how he runs the Navy, but he aligns it to the business world and stuff like that. And then you get people like Anne Sherry, who's an exceptional 
Australian rugby board person, but how she runs, uh, you know, P and O and that sort of stuff. People, people sometimes align themselves through other people's experiences, mm. and I think what the rugby business network has always been about going up there, and it's not saying, well, we're going to tell a story about rugby. I mean, if you want to hear rugby stories, you go to a lunch, you know, and have your twenty beers. Yeah. I think for this one here, it's about getting up there and hearing the uniqueness of a person, how they got to who they are, and all the bad sides, just as much as the good sides. And then turning, what are those learnings, what are those things, and then basically being able to share and say, oh, well, look, this is where I am now, and this is where, I want to, where I'm going, where I'd like to go, but the thing is, for me, this is what I believe needs to be done. And that's where we're getting people like Raylene Castle, uh, for us, who's, you know... I, I'm very intrigued uh, in regards to what she's doing there, but, uh, I mean, look, there's some pretty big personalities in Australian rugby. I mean, uh, Chica's uh, done some fantastic things in the past, but I think what happens is it's about... You know, we need to be very more focused about the whole thing and, and that needs to permeate down through all the super sides. Um, again, it gets to the stage where the difficult thing I find in professional rugby now is that, you know, a lot of these guys who are going into professional rugby, they, they, they're very, a lot of them either just go straight from school and stuff. I think the biggest apprenticeship in, in anything to do with professional rugby is just learn how to be part of a community side. Mm. And, and if you... If you have the, uh, that apprenticeship of learning how to be part of a, about a part of a team and part of a community and, and doing things that, you know, not necessarily what you want to do, but then there's an outcome for everyone. Well, it goes back to the old we, not me thing. Yeah. And I think what happens is you're seeing these young kids going from a you know, private school, first 15 up there, and they don't even know the value of money. Um, you know, and, and then I think what happens is they're getting into a very corporate sort of world now. So I think... There's a lot of people like Andrew Hoare in you know, New South Wales who's trying to really sort of ingrain the elements of, of, of community and this sort of stuff, but you've got to have those people around you to sort of get that in. So the buy-in's got to be collectively, and I think Raylene Castle has got a, a tremendous opportunity to align the asset and stakeholders of Australian rugby. Again, that's most of the time that's around. There's a lot of people out there who've, got, who, who've been had strengths in the past due to where they are and that sort of stuff, but I think it's not about sitting on a fence anymore. I think we've got so Australian rugby uh, behind it. It's the business world out there want to believe. And if they believe and if there's value, they'll rise to the occasion. Mm. But what rugby has to realise is it's no, use, it's no use going to sponsor Australian rugby. What Australian rugby should be doing is going back and say, well, you know, going back to a corporation and say, well, how can we help you get your outcomes? If we help you get your outcomes, how can you be involved with us? That's how they should be thinking because... We, we, until we build up the brand of Australian rugby, the Wallabies and the whole thing, you know, we, we, we don't have that value because what's straight next door, you've got AFL doing a bloody good job of it, you've got the soccer doing a, a job of it, and you've got NRL doing a good job of it. They all come from different worlds. So we, we, do have all the, we do have all the ingredients. We've got the ingredients. I certainly know that the, the business world, out there's people out there who sort of come from it, they believe in it, but what they don't believe is what in Australian rugby right away now. And look, I think that that could change, but there's got to be, I think, there's got to be a bit of pain because there's a bit of gain. And most of that's just been about people turning around and getting back to that we, not me principle. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's a fantastic way to finish. Before I let you go, Moose, you've got a few events coming on with the Rugby Network. I know Raylene's going to be speaking yeah. end of April. Do you want to yeah, maybe yeah, just give yeah, a yeah. for that? Yeah, so look, we've, uh, we thought we'd give... Uh, with the Rugby Business Network this year, we're looking to just have sort of four events and that stuff in, in Sydney. But 
The key one, I suppose, what people want to do is that Raylene's come on, everyone knows, the Rugby Australia CEO, but we're very fortunate to get her on the 30th of April, uh, 99 York Street. And look, it uh, starts at 5.30. We always do them on a Monday, so it doesn't really interfere with people's schedules. But the key to this is, is basically, you know, coming to the event, we'll probably get, you know, around, around 150 people there, and we normally get the, uh, for everywhere, most of the sea level people. But I think this is an embracement for everybody because... We're talking about a person who's got the, you know, not only the responsibility, but basically we want to understand her uniqueness in regards yeah. to how she's going to do it. And, and I think from the point of view of um, the expectation is that she's also been a professional um, CEO in sport for a long, long time. So what ingredients is she bringing to the table for not only for rugby, but also how she's looking to do that in the future? So on the 30th of April, uh, yeah, we've got uh, her at 99 York Street, and I think it's going to be very compelling from anybody, even outside of rugby, I think it's just to, to hear a person of that stature. And look, we we charge thirty bucks, but the thirty bucks is just to cover the cost of the night, and you get a drink on entry and some food and this sort of stuff. So we're not, it's not a corporate thing. I think it's just a very unique night. And then on the second of uh, on the second of July, we're doing a promotion of the Victus Games, and we've got some uh, their athletes and this stuff. Stephen Moore is he? Yeah, well, Stephen Moore unfortunately said he can't make the date, but we've certainly got some other people, but. This is about the athletes. We're yep. talking about soldiers. We're talking about people and stuff. So we're going to, we've got some pretty compelling people to chat to. But it's more about them interviewing these people because you know, for us, you know, I've been lucky. I've got, I've got all my limbs. I've got, you know, I've got a sense of humour. I've got all this sort of stuff. Whereas, you know, a lot of these people, are, you know, they're, they're missing either, you know, part of them. They're blind or whatever it is. Yeah. I think it's just some, a massive opportunity for the RBN to sort of get into bed with something so compelling as these people and see how we can help people get. And the main reason of that is, is, is just getting people to go to the games. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, so that's pretty exciting. But, yeah, other than that, we've um, business as usual. But, uh, yeah, it's been, very, been great to chat to you. Absolutely. Yeah. It's been some great stories, and I appreciate you with your open and honesty and all yeah. the great stories about your family. So I appreciate you coming on, and you're welcome anytime. Yeah, sure. Much appreciated. Thanks. And guys, that was the moose, Adrian Skeggs. What an outstanding story. It's one of those things that, you know, I think the 80s and 90s was a very underrated period of time for rugby. And it's one of those things that because it wasn't a professional sport, a lot of these guys have really established themselves, whether it's in the business, education, those sort of platforms, they did actually have the opportunity to establish themselves in those areas. So they've got plenty of great stories, not only about sports, but about kind of the professional life as well. So I'm really appreciative for Moose coming on the show. Please follow him across his different social medias on his Twitter or his LinkedIn. I'm sure that he would appreciate you even reaching out and letting him know, letting him know about you listening to the podcast. All right, guys. Next week, it's going to be NRL Field with Joey Williams. He'll be making his second appearance on the show, but we've got plenty recorded up our sleeves. NRL players like Luke Rickardson and Kurt Gidley. International flavour with Dorian Yates and Paul Rabel. So there's plenty, plenty more coming up. So if you haven't yet, please subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast. If you've got iTunes, please leave me a five-star review. Just helps me to continue to grow the show and I can continue to get all these awesome guests as I've been doing. Please connect with me if you've got any guest requests or suggestions for the show. Send them through, Tristan at TalkingWithTK.com. Connect on the social medias. I'd love to see you follow me, and I'll follow you back for sure. Twitter, Facebook, I'm at Talking With TK. My personal page on my Facebook is Tristan Cannell. 
K apostrophe N E double L. It's also on LinkedIn. Email I've given you that, and Instagram is Tristan Nell. So please connect with me, and I'd love to see what you're doing as well. All right, guys, that is it for this week. Please share the show with your family and friends. That was the Moose. I'm TK, and this was Talking with TK.